0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for all of you. Praise God for another opportunity to gather. I, we, were, we pray before the service, and this morning Courtney prayed for us, and she just, in her prayer, mentioned that how unworthy we are to be leading in the worship of God. And, you know, we think about that, anyone who comes up on this stage realizes just how unworthy any of us is to do anything that would... Lead God's people in worship. We come here to hear God speak to us through His Word. We come here to lift our praises up to our King. We come here to pray collectively. Uh, we don't come here to watch a show or to see anyone sing or preach or anything like that. So I pray that our hearts today are calibrated in that way, that our minds are focused on receiving from the Lord and directing our praise to Him, because we are all unworthy to even be here. You know, as I mentioned several uh, months ago, I think, I was, I was struck by a sermon I heard David Platt give. At the very beginning of the sermon, uh, he mentioned how uh, he was amazed that he was up in front of the people of God because he really deserves to be in hell right now. And that is, that is true. That is true. And it is sobering to consider that for all of us. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 13. Romans 13, we are in verses 8 to 10. Short little text for today. But it does stand alone in its own right, so we're going to give it the attention that it deserves, or at least try to. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at practical Christianity. Practical Christianity. Christianity, practical Christian living. What does it look like for us as Christians to bear witness to Christ in how we live, to bear witness to Christ in how we behave? You know, our behavior, our conduct, our activity out in the world is an important aspect of our witness. It's an important aspect of bringing glory to God and showing the truth and power of Christ and his gospel. We bring glory to our Father in heaven when those in the world, as Dennis prayed, see our good works. They bring glory to our Father in heaven. When the world sees our love for one another, Jesus says we are drawn, they, are, they are drawn to understand that we belong to him. They see the truth of the Christian Message: How we live can never be divorced from what we have to say. If we are sharing the gospel with our mouths, but we are living like worldly people, then we are showing ourselves to be hypocrites. You know, people talk often about this mass exodus of uh, young people from the church, growing up, and this is—I've been hearing people talk about this for a long time, decades even—that. Uh, Young people go off to college, they leave home, and they they leave the Christian faith. And I'm convinced that a big part of that is what they're hearing is different from what they're seeing. They see one thing at home, at church, at Christian school, whatever, and they hear something different. May it be that what people hear is the same as what people say. What we hear, what what people hear from us, is the same as what they see in our daily lives. So we bear witness to the Lord through how we live. What is the new normal? What is the new normal for those who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son? You know, when we become a Christian, we have a new normal. And yes, we are growing and we are being sanctified and being transformed continually. And we we see ourselves sin and struggle and we call out to God. We ask for his help and we grow through the Christian life. But there is a new normal. And so let me just ask you this. Have, Have you had a new normal moment in your life? And you may not be able to identify it, you know, the spiritual birthday thing. But do you have a new normal? Are you... Being transformed by the renewal of your mind? Are you not being conformed to the world? Has there been a conversion in your life? Or are you just marching along as you always have? You know, none of us is born a Christian. None of us is born with this normal that we've been reading about, this practical, uh, spirit empowered Christian living. No one's born that way. We are transformed, we are transferred in our lives, we are converted. Are you a converted Christian? Are you a converted Christian? We've been looking at what that looks like over the last several weeks, and today we come back to the theme of love. And the title for the sermon this morning is Loving Our Neighbor. We're going back to this theme. We've already seen how this theme dominates the Christian life. The big idea of uh, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21 is love. We saw that very long list. It's one of the One of of a few places in the New Testament where we get such an extensive list of what we are to do. It's It's a very practical passage. It's great that we were able to just walk through that. But in that passage, Romans 12, 9 to 21, we see where it begins. Verses 9 to 10, you can just look down there. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love, love. It's no accident that love is the beginning of this list. Uh, Everything that we go on to read must be tethered back to this command to love. And at the end of that larger section, in chapter 12, Paul told us how we are to live among outsiders, how we are to live out in the world, out in society, And this, of course, naturally led him at the beginning of chapter 13 to address the topic of submitting to the government, submitting to the authorities. This is one of the key ways that we live out in society, As we live in relation to our governments, local and state and federal for us in this country. We live in relation to them with a submission, a respect, an honoring. And this is what we looked at last week. So that was chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Now, in verse 8, Paul seems to take us back to the love theme. So he seems to go back to what he was looking at in chapter 12. Everything he's been talking about, everything he just said, and we'll go on to say, boils down to this one word, this one theme, love. So if you would, go ahead and stand with me. As we read God's word together. And we're going to read chapter 13 verses 1 to 10. But our text for today is verses 8 to 10. And if uh, if you're curious, if you're interested to go back and look at some of those other texts I just referred to, you can always go back, find that on our website, and you can listen to uh, our treatment of those verses that lead up to the passage for today. Chapter 13 of Romans, this is God's Word. It is perfect and profitable for His people. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then our verses for today. Verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You can go to be seated. Let's go to the Lord. Let's talk to our God. Let's ask for his blessing on our service. Let's ask him to open our hearts and our ears. You know, we all come with things we're thinking about, worrying about, excited about, whatever. Let's pray that the Lord would reign us in, that he would reign in our minds and he would help us all to be present in this moment and to listen and to grow from His Word, and that we would leave doing it, not just be here to hear it and walk out the door forgetting what we've heard. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to be together again. We praise You for the Scriptures. We thank You that in the Scriptures You speak to us, Father. We don't have to just sit around and and wait for a uh, a private voice, uh, uh, a sound in our in our mind or, or some thought flashing through our minds. We we don't sit around and and wait for you to, to do something specific. Father, we don't go to uh, have our palms read and uh, looking into uh, all of these other practices, Lord, that try to discern what's going to happen and what's going to be next. Lord, we look to your word. This is where you speak to us. This is where we are where we know what we are to be and do, how we are to live, what your will is, we already know it. It is here in your sufficient scriptures. So God, we pray now that you would help me to communicate clearly what is here, that you would guide my words. Father, I pray that all of us would be impacted at at this very moment by your word. And Lord, I pray that you would bring the knowledge of the need for salvation to some among us who aren't saved. Lord, maybe there are some here this morning, who are not converted Christians, that if Christ were to return, uh, they would not be ready to meet the King. Father, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would grant them eyes to see the glory of Christ, that they would, as John says at the end of his gospel, that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. And that by believing, they would have life in his name. That they would, as Paul says, confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. And believe in their hearts that you, Father, have raised him from the dead. And that they would be saved. Father, we pray that those who call out to you would believe that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, we thank you that these promises are for all who would hear and trust you. That you turn away no one, Jesus, who comes to you. You turn away no sheep. So, Father, we ask you this morning to save sinners. We ask you to build us all up. We are very much in need of your grace today, Father. We're in need of seeing more clearly what your will is for us as we live. Our life is a breath and it will soon be over for all of us, Lord. We want to glorify you Be faithful. Help us. What a precious gift each day. Each day is in this life. And how many we waste. What a precious gift each hour is in this life. And soon our hours will run out. Our days will run out. Would we use them well as a church? Each of us, we pray. Be with us, Father, as we come to hear you from your word. And be with us as we continue in the remainder of this service, as we sing and pray, as we participate in the Lord's Supper. God, would all that we do glorify you, and would you be with us? Would you protect us from the enemy, protect our minds from distraction, worry, fear, concern of other things? Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So two points, two points for us this morning. Two ways that Paul understands what it means for us to love our neighbor. What is it to love our neighbor as Paul describes it here? It is, two things here, our ongoing debt. It must be considered an ongoing debt. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then it is our overarching command. This is what it is to love our neighbor. So let's look at the first, our ongoing Debt. Look with me at the first part of verse 8. We're just going to focus here on the very first two phrases. Paul says, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other. So why in the world is Paul talking about debt? Why does he say, Owe no one Anything. Well, it provides a link with what he has just said in verses 1 to 7. So you'll remember, you can look there, verse 7, what does Paul say? Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Christians are always to be those who give what is due, to give what is due. Now, some have mistakenly come to this verse, they have mistakenly interpreted this verse to say that Christians cannot take on any form of debt. Maybe you've heard people say that, or maybe you've even thought that. You've read this verse, owe no one anything, and you've come away thinking that this means that we are forbidden from borrowing money, from taking on Any form of debt. But that's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what Paul is is saying. Instead, when Paul says, owe no one anything, he is basically repeating what he said in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. In other words, it's another way of saying, pay to all what is owed to them. If we have debts, things owed to people, mortgage, car payment, whatever else, fill in the blank, then we ought to pay those. We ought to pay those faithfully and we ought to pay those off. We ought to pay what is due. I think we could say that we should not take on any debt that we don't intend to pay. Of course we should say that. We don't take on any debt that we can't pay or don't intend to pay. And if there's a possibility that we can't pay it, then we don't take it on. Because we are on the front end then disobeying what is being said here. We ought to pay what is due. We shouldn't be those who owe people things because we are not paying what is due. So this text should not be used to forbid borrowing money. We see the legitimacy of borrowing throughout the Bible. I'll just give you a few verses that show that this was practiced throughout the Bible, throughout the history of God's people. Psalm 37, 21. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. The issue is with borrowing and not paying back. And then Psalm 37, verse 26. The righteous man is ever lending generously. And where there is lending, there is, by necessity, borrowing. Lending and Borrowing. Matthew 25, 27. You remember, remember the parable of the talents. Uh, at the end of that, Jesus says, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. In the parable, there's one who does not invest his talent. He takes it and he just buries it. He doesn't invest it and increase it. He takes it and he buries it. And then when the master comes to get it back, he just gives, he just digs it up and gives him his talent. And of course, the master... Rebukes sharply this servant. He says, Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. And so, Jesus, there in the parable, he assumes a world in which there is borrowing and lending. So, we ought not come to a verse like this and say, simplistically, all this means that we should never have a debt. So what does this idea of debt or owing have to do with love? Because that's Paul's focus here. What does it have to do with love? Well, while we are not to be those who owe because we have failed to pay what is due, we are always to be those who owe love. We are always those who owe love. In other words, we have an ongoing debt. An ongoing debt that constantly requires payment. We are always owing. As Christians, we are always in the debt of others when it comes to love. And you know, I hope we understand that it, it matters how we relate to other people. I think sometimes in the Christian life, this is just a very basic implication for us. Sometimes in the Christian life, we can kind of devotionalize the Christian life where really all that matters is some kind of personal uh, way of relating to God or personal practices that relate vertically to God. And we really treat people any way we would like. We need to understand that the way that we relate to God has so much to do with the way we relate to people. You can't divorce the two. To love God well is to love people well. How can you love God whom you have not seen, we're told, when you don't love the person right in front of you, made in God's image? It is important how we relate to other people. We cannot just have some sort of private spirituality, and that be the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. We are seeing here we have an ongoing debt. It is an ongoing debt that we could never fully repay. Let me give you a quote from the early church theologian, Origen. Uh, Now there was much wrong with Origen's theology, so I'm not holding up Origen in the way I would say Augustine or Chrysostom or Calvin or anyone like that. But this particular quote, he was one of the early commentators on the scriptures in the early church, very early on in the second and third century. And Origen describes it this way, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love a debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. Never. We will never come to a point when our love debt to our neighbor is paid. We will never come to a point when we can say, no, I don't owe you that anymore. Never. Right up until Death. This is till death do us part. We are indebted to the other to love them till death do us part. As long as we live in this world, we owe this to our neighbor. Now, this causes us to ask the question, what is love? And you could, of course, write entire volumes of books on what love is. But we've recently got a bit of of insight into the nature of true love. We talked about that at the beginning of chapter 12, as I mentioned earlier in verses 9 to 10. This love is by nature without hypocrisy. Love one another sincerely. Love one another from the heart. Love one another honestly without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine, Paul says. So this is not just acting a certain way towards people. This is having a, a, a real love for them in your heart that shows up on the outside in your life. Which is without, it is without hypocrisy. It is with an eye to the good. We abhor what is evil, we were told in chapter 12. We abhor what is evil. We hold fast to what is good. And that means as our neighbor is standing there, as the other person is standing there, we consider anything that would come against them as evil we consider that as bad we we do everything we can to prevent that from taking that person and anything that would come at them that is for their good we would cling to that embrace that invite that and do everything we can to heap that on the other person so it is without hypocrisy it is with an eye to the good and it is with warmth and affection it is a family kind of love. And this we saw that this was particularly the case within the body of Christ. It is friendly. It is warm. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13, love is not rude. <laughs> love is not irritable. How practical is that? How practical would that be for all of us if we meditated on that before we came home and saw our spouse's? or before we got on a difficult phone call or before we came to group or came to the gathered church love is not rude love is not irritable it is warm it has affections and those affections are demonstrated it is friendly it is kind John 15:13 tells us that it is by nature self sacrificial Jesus says there, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, it's one of the reasons that we so prize and value in our society the Medal of Honor. Because it is typically the case that a Medal of Honor recipient who receives the pinning on of that uh, due to their heroic actions in combat by the President of the United States That happens typically because someone does for their fellow soldiers what Jesus is talking about here. They lay their life down for their comrades. They lay their life down for others. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And of course, the pure, perfect, ultimate example of that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, he was saying this before he went to the cross. I like the way John Murray describes love, and I hesitated to use this quote because he uses some kind of some strange, archaic language, but it's just so good, and I think it describes so well what love is. So just try to stick with me. Try to understand what he is saying. He says this, Love is emotive, motive, and expulsive, already lost you, but I'm gonna explain. He says more. I'm not just gonna leave you there. It is emotive and therefore creates affinity with and affection for the object. There is an emotional draw. It is emotive. It involves affections. It's it's really down in the heart. It's present there. It moves within. Sorry, that was all me, and then I'm gonna go on. It is motive. In that it impels to action. It moves us towards the other person in activity for their good. And then finally he says, it is expulsive because it expels what is alien to the interests which love seeks to promote. It's a beautiful definition I think. It, It fights against that which is foreign to that love. It calls sin out. Because sin destroys. It doesn't pet sin in a person's life. You know, we hear a lot the, uh, that from the kind of mainline Protestant church world, from the progressive liberal, uh, quote unquote, Christianity that's out there, that, that we, we have to love and the way we love is by affirming. How can we affirm sin? How can we affirm something that literally destroys our neighbor? That sends them to an eternal hell. That is not love. That is to hate in the same way that we are told in Proverbs that the one who does not discipline his son hates him. It is hateful to not call out sin. It is hateful to affirm wickedness. It is hateful to let someone you are supposed to love simply sink into the pit of hell because you are afraid to offend them. That is selfishness. That is hate. There's nothing loving about that. Love, true love, this is our ongoing debt. And it must always be paid. It will never be paid in So let me just end here with a question. Who have you decided to stop paying? I want you to think about that for a moment. You're here this morning. Inevitably, someone, maybe all of us to some degree, have decided, maybe not even consciously, maybe unconsciously, stop paying that debt. We don't owe that debt anymore. So who have you decided in your own life as you're going through life and you're meeting adversity and you're running into enemies and you're running into persecutors and you're running into people who just pure and simple drive you crazy or annoy you, get on your nerves, not likable naturally for you? Who have you decided to stop paying 1 First, First Corinthians 13, kind of love too. Warm, without hypocrisy, an eye to the good, kind of love too. Self-sacrificial, laying yourself down for them, love too. Emotive, motive, and expulsive love. Who have you decided to stop paying Our second point this morning is, or the second way that Paul understands this love of neighbor is that it is our overarching command. It is our ongoing debt. We need to consider it as a debt that we'll never repay. We keep paying it out until we die. And then it is also our overarching command. So now look with me at the rest of the passage. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Here we get the big idea of the passage love fulfills the law. It's the big idea that Paul wants us to leave with. The Old Testament was full of laws governing how people were to relate to one another. And you'll read those. You go through um, the first five books of the Bible, Exodus and, and into uh, to Deuteronomy, and you see there all these different laws relating to the way that people are to interact with one another. It is full of those laws. And then the reiteration of those laws through the prophets. And we get, of course, The reiteration of those laws through the wisdom literature, through Proverbs, for example. We see the the fleshing out of those laws. The summary of God's law, of these moral norms that were to govern God's people, were found in the Ten Commandments. That was the summary. The Ten Commandments was the summary of God's moral norms for his people. It was the summary of God's will and God's law for his people. And we see the Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And they were originally written by God himself on the tablets. You remember the story from Exodus. Moses goes up the mountain and he receives from the Lord, God himself, wrote on the tablets these 10 commandments. Of course, Moses comes down, the people are worshiping the golden calf, he breaks the tablets, and then later he goes back up and gets them again. 10 commandments, 10 summary laws. The first four commands deal with a person's vertical relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those were the first four. And then we have the latter six commandments, which were to govern man's horizontal relationships between people. These were the commands that were to govern how God's people related within the community. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not Commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. These commands function as a summary of God's will for his people. They were a summary of God's holy law. Well, here in our passage, Paul goes to those latter six commandments. That's where Paul's head is. He goes to the latter six and he lists a sampling of them. He doesn't list all of them, but he lists A sampling against adultery, murder, stealing, and coveting. And then he says, or any other commandment. So fill in the blank, Paul is saying. Fill in the blank. Add honoring parents. Add not bearing false witness. Or add any specific command that falls under any of these six. And here's what Paul says. Whatever you add, whatever you put in this category of command when you take them all together even, they are collectively fulfilled, summed up by one great command, by one great overarching command. Verse eight, love the other. Verse nine, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, do no wrong to a neighbor. This is the great summary of all of the law We all know from the Gospels that Jesus summed up God's law in the same way, with the command to love. And Paul is, of course, communicating the Lord's teaching. And so scholars debate to what extent Paul is drawing from here uh, written text, to what extent Paul is drawing from specific uh, text. But we know at the very least that Paul is communicating The Lord's word. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. What Paul says comes directly from Christ. As Paul will say, it is a command of the Lord. Paul is communicating Christ's teaching. And in the Gospels we see, as Jesus explained, that the first four commandments are summed up by one command. To love God with all of our being. We see this in Matthew 22, verse 37. To love God. God with all that we are. When we love God with all that we are, with our mind, soul, body, strength, when we love God with our whole being, then we are satisfying, we are fulfilling those first four commandments. The latter six commands are summed up by one command, to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39. And Jesus is here quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting Leviticus 19, 18. So how does Jesus conclude the matter in the Gospels after he says that, that there is love of God with your whole being and that you love neighbor as yourself? He concludes with these words in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, that is a very significant statement. This is law, and prophets is all of God's revealed will. Jesus is saying all scripture, all scripture, all that scripture teaches about God's ethical will for human living, God's teaching for human conduct, ultimately traced back to, fulfilled in, summed up by these two commands. Love the Lord your God with your whole self and love Your neighbor as yourself. So, what does this look like? What does this look like for us as we leave here this morning, as we come to the end? What does it look like for us to love our neighbor as ourselves? Let me give you five considerations. You can write these down if you would like. Five considerations that help us put a little bit more meat on these bones. To love our neighbor as ourselves and thereby fulfill the law that God has given us horizontally. First, it applies to everybody. It applies to everyone. No one is excluded from our love. And we've already seen that a little bit with the enemies and persecutors. No one is excluded from our love. Yes, it begins with one another in verse 8. So if you if you look at verse 8, you will see oh no one anything except to love each other. So yes, it begins with one another and that does suggest for us that Paul has Christians in view. That as Paul in other places uses the language of one another, he's referring to Christians that we are to love Christians in this way. But Paul's teaching here ends with the word neighbor. And that tells us that this extends. It extends the application to everyone. Paul is not just saying, love those who are in Christ's church. He is saying, love your neighbor in general. So who is our neighbor? Well, I had Dennis earlier read to us from the Gospel of Luke. Remember Jesus' teaching there in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We had the, the man who was beaten left to die, and there are three people who pass by. The first two are among the people. They're there among the people. They, they belong to the same people, a priest and a Levite of Israel. And what do they do? They just keep going. The third person is a Samaritan. Now, if there was anyone who the Jews would have said, that guy is not my neighbor, it would have been the Samaritan. There were deep historical rifts between the Jews and the Samaritans. You get a a, a sense for this in John chapter 4 when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Jews and Samaritans did not relate to one another. And yet in this parable, Jesus describes this Samaritan who instead of passing by this man who had been beaten and left for dead, who was passed by by his own people, the Samaritan stops and he helps him. He provides for him. He, he, he cares for his wounds and he brings him to a place where he can stay and be cared for. This man was a neighbor to this beaten man, even though they were not associates, even though they were not of the same people, even though that uh, they were culturally understood to not associate with with one another, Jesus says, these two are neighbors. And that tells us that our neighbor is any person we would come across, any person we would meet. Everyone fits in this category. And as I said before, after reading chapter 12, you can't exclude a single person from this list of those whom you are to love. Second, we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This idea of loving as we love ourselves. Now, it's really interesting here how some people will go off on uh, out into left field here and, and make a big point that, you know, hey, let's consider we're to love ourselves. That's really missing the point of what, uh, what is being said, what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying here. Uh, this is not a call to self-love. Self-love is assumed. Self-love is assumed. It is a foregone conclusion. We love ourselves was even reading this week, someone commented, you know that even the person who commits suicide, murder of self, even the person who commits suicide truly believes that he or she will be better off, happier without life. And so it is still it is an intrinsically selfish act. Love of self is found everywhere, in every heart, in every mind. In all people, regardless of how they may feel or seem to feel about themselves. Paul says this clearly in Ephesians 5:29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. It's what we do. We, of course, have self-love. Now, of course, this self-love gets twisted in all kinds of ways. It is perverted, it is accentuated, it is highlighted in our sinfulness. It is twisted in ways, as I just mentioned before, that that lead to depression and suicide. It takes all different kinds of forms, but self-love is assumed. It is natural for us to love ourselves in a basic way, but it is sinful in the way that we pervert it and accentuate it beyond nature. Just as we love ourselves and care for our own good, so too ought we to seek the same for other people. How often do we think that way? How often do we, you know, I've, I've, I've experienced little conviction moments on this, even, you know, you, maybe you've done this before too. You go into a bathroom and you, you draw off your hands. You're headed out the door, now I do, I open the door with the paper towel. Not everybody does that, I do that. And you open the door with the paper towel and the trash can is maybe six, seven feet. So you try to ball it up, you know, and you toss it in and you miss. You miss. You just leave it? You just leave it for the next person? Or do you go over there, you pick it up and you put it in the trash? Even in little moments like that, we're thinking about the other person. Would I want someone to just throw stuff on the floor if I were cleaning the bathroom? This applies across the board to the tiniest, even in in cases like that, to the silliest, most trivial little moments to the big things in terms of how fast we drive on the interstate, how erratic we drive, how we relate to our wives, husbands, children, how we speak to people, how we use our time When we're working for our employer, everything falls under this category. Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 says it this way, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What an amazing grid for our ethical system. As we walk through life, we are thinking, would I want someone to do that to me? And if our answer to that question is no, then we ought not to do it. Would I want someone to do that for me? If our answer to that question is yes, then we ought to do it. We give plenty of attention to caring for self. Give plenty of attention to washing ourselves, feeding ourselves, clothing ourselves, satisfying ourselves. That sort of energy needs to be turned outward toward our neighbor. Third, This is only possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. We rely on His Spirit working through us. It is only possible through Christ. Remember what Paul said back in Romans 8, verses 3 to 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. And then listen to this little purpose clause. God sent Christ, he condemned sin in the flesh, he did what the law could not do, why? To what end? What's the purpose? He goes on to tell us in verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, Christ came to die for us, to cover our sins, and to by his Spirit make it to be the case that from the heart we would live out God's holy law of love in the world. This love, this love for neighbor that fulfills the whole law, is also called in the New Testament the law of Christ. It governs and operates in those who are in Christ. Listen, this is not an ethic you can follow apart from Christ. There have been social gospel movements that try to sort of put this in place in their own steam, in their own strength. It's not going to happen. What we need is a new heart. What we need is the circumcision of the heart. What we need is baptism of the Holy Spirit. What we need is to be born again. We need our hearts to be transformed. The law of God written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit sent from Christ to indwell us. Apart from that, there's no way you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not going to happen. And in fact, under every so-called act of love, there will be layers and layers and layers of idolatry and self-love. Not love of neighbor. Not love of God. That comes only by the Spirit of Christ. We need Christ. We need to be saved. We need to be born again if we are to live this radical kind of of life. Fourth, we cannot merely substitute love for God's written law. You know, you might be reading this and say, okay, there you go. God's law out the window. What I really need to do is love. Well, there is a sense in which the love command envelops all of God's law. That's what Paul is saying here, that there is a sense in which that is true. But here's the problem. Love can be a subjective mess when it is not rooted in God's revealed will. We are sinners saved by God's grace. We are still carrying around our mortal bodies. We are still carrying around our flesh. We still sow to the flesh. Love will be a subjective mess if it is not tethered to God's revealed will in Scripture. We must hold tightly to the law of God. We must hold tightly to the word of God. We must be like the Psalm 1 man who delights in the law of the Lord day and night. Who delights in it and meditates on it day and night. We don't love perfectly and we need the instruction that the written word gives us. The Holy Spirit takes the written word and empowers us with that, to go out and do the law in everyday life as we live out the law of God through the law of Christ, the law of love. We live out the word of God by the spirit of God showing the love of God. We cannot set aside the written scriptures for a subjective sense of love. Finally, Although we do not simply replace law, this does simplify the Christian life for us. And I think this is really helpful, you know, because things can become complex and overwhelming to us in life. You know, maybe you feel that way today. You just feel like everything is just mounting up on you. You feel like a failure. You feel like nothing that you do is, is, is moving forward at all. And you just, you have all these lists. I'm a list person. I have a lot of lists in my life. And you you feel like there's just too many lists. It's back-breaking lists just crushing you. One item, one item to govern all of our relating, all of our doing. Love our neighbor as ourselves. So maybe put those lists in the drawer for a little while at least and pull out this item. And think on this item. Meditate on this item. By the word of God, through the Spirit's power, go and love. This simple command constantly reorients us as well. It constantly brings us back to who we are. It constantly brings us back to the basics. And another thing that it does is it checks our motives. You know, you can't constantly be thinking do unto others as I would have them do unto me. You can't constantly be thinking, love my neighbor as myself and have motives that are all about yourself. You will be in that able to step outside of yourself and not use people, abuse people, and treat people as just a a means to an end. Thinking of this command prevents us From doing good to people for our own benefit. Let me just ask you about that. You know, how much of what we do is really just for self? Really just so that we can feel good, so that we can be comfortable and be at ease, so that we can be liked by other people, so that we can be respected by other people? That's a temptation for people in the local church, particularly people in leadership in a local church. Doing things because you have to uphold some kind of image. You have to uphold some kind of persona. Because after all, you are in this or that position. After all, you do have this or that responsibility. What about parents? Doing what we do without this command over our hearts and over our deeds. This is what our Lord requires of us. And here's the beautiful thing. By his grace, this is what our Lord gives us the strength. Every day we wake up in this world, this is what our Lord gives us the strength to go out and do, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for instructing us this morning from your word. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to hear this command again probably familiar to most gathered here this morning, but Lord, we just, we lose sight of it. We lose sight of the nuance of it. We lose sight of the simplicity of it. We lose sight of the power that this has ethically as we think about even the smallest acts in our daily lives. Father, thank you for this reminder. We pray that your spirit would go with us and empower us to do this. And even among those. Who hate us. Who persecute us. Who are our enemies. Even among those. To whom naturally we do not feel. Well disposed. God would we even to those individuals. Would we love as Christ loved. Would we love our neighbor. As ourselves? Father help us we pray for this time in the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would join our hearts together more and more, that this would contribute to that, and that you would bind our hearts to yourself through Christ, that we would commune with Christ, commune with one another. We thank you for this reminder of his atoning death. We pray that we would, be, we would receive fresh strength to go out into our week and to live practical, down-in-the-weeds Christian lives for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.